Hey there, welcome to How to Live, the podcast where we have real, meaningful, and fun conversations with people who inspire us, and sometimes just with each other. We are your hosts, Jess and Steph Dadon, and this week, if you don't know, we have partnered with Virgin Australia Melbourne Fashion Festival, which has taken place in, you guessed it, Melbourne, and we're basically going to be delivering an audio experience of the festival. We're going to be chatting to designers, stylists, and entrepreneurs, talking about their secrets to their successes, how they've built their careers, and so much more. Can't believe it's finally here. We We are kicking off today with a really, really awesome interview. We're sitting down with James Bartle, the founder of Outland Denim, which is the ethical denim company loved by celebrities, including Meghan Markle and Leo DiCaprio. Okay, those are some real legit celebrities. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. The brand has a big focus on sustainability and transparency, which is really why we love them. And they offer employment and training opportunities to women who have experienced exploitation. We actually hadn't even planned to interview James this week until last week we sat down with him on a panel and we were so blown away by his story we were like we have to get him on the podcast so we would love for you to start by telling us the story of how you started outland denim well um is a little bit of an obscure way of getting into a fashion label, but I went to the movies with my wife one night and we watched the Liam Neeson film Taken. And it was after that movie that I was really provoked to learn more about the issue of human trafficking. And a few years after watching the film, I had the opportunity to travel with the rescue agency uh, to see the problem firsthand. And it was on that trip that I saw a young girl that was for sale. And, you know, seeing it with your own eyes is a, you know, it's just a different experience. It was really confronting to me that, you know, human beings were traded and they were just a commodity and worth nothing but a tool in somebody else's business. And I just found that just horrific and knew that I wanted to be a part of the solution. And that's how we sort of led into starting a, a label. And the whole concept behind the label was to be able to generate a business model that gave the right opportunities and the right tools to those women that were had either been exploited in this way or were vulnerable to being exploited in this way everything they needed to be successful themselves and so that took us a bit over six years to build that business model where we could guarantee that a woman coming to work within this environment would get herself out of poverty and therefore the impact on her and her family and even broader than that was really powerful and uh, once we knew we had this that's when we launched our brand there are so many ways that you could have addressed that problem. Why did you land on the idea of a brand as a way to kind of help and resolve it? Well, look, Cambodia has about 1.2 million garment workers. And so it was an industry that I guess they had knowledge around. It seemed at the time like an obvious choice was to do something around the garment industry. And I always had a love for denim. I'm not a fashion guy. And but when I was a kid, I dreamed of being a cowboy. And, you know, so denim was always, you know, really the solid part of my wardrobe. And I can't say it was the strategy was denim from the beginning as in because we knew how powerful that product would be. Uh, it was more just because I loved the product. And so that's why we, we chose that. And then as we got into it further, we, you know, we realized that this was a really tough market to crack and that denim was a really hard product to make. And so we needed to evolve quite quickly. And when I say quickly, I mean, that took us six years. 
so it wasn't quickly at all. But that was teaching people that had no idea how to sew in the beginning to be able to make one of the hardest garments in fashion. I think we've learned so much since then too, like just understanding that if you were going to choose a product to change the world with, I believe denim's actually one of the best, if not the best, based on a range of attributes that the product has. It's so incredible. Like for us coming from the brand side of things, it's really incredible to hear that that's why you decided to start a brand and ourselves being so passionate about weaving our values and thinking it's so important to bring your values to a brand. It's really cool to hear your story because it's so unique and different. And I love to see that you guys are doing things differently. It's not just the fact that you have these garment workers who have experienced slavery or similar. In what ways do you feel like you guys are different to a regular denim company? I think we're different in most ways. We're very unconventional. The way we produce our product to start with, although lots of brands are moving into this space, it's from the beginning, it's had to be from the fiber we use to the way that it's processed all the way through so that the organic dyeing or vegetable dyeing processes and then through to the washing processes, it's got to be a um, the same deal. It's got to be organic wash processes. We've got to be able to reduce water. So the environmental commitment that we've made as a brand, I guess, is just a no-brainer for us that we would do that. And so that's one thing is that people can be assured on an environmental level, we're doing everything that's possible to be the most environmentally sustainable brand on the planet. But then on the social impact side, when somebody buys a product, they're buying an opportunity for a woman that wouldn't get it necessarily otherwise. They're buying training, which means they're buying the ability for a woman to learn every aspect of the product, which is very different to most garment factories where they might make a pocket, let's say, for the rest of their life. Over about a two and a half, three year period, they'll go through all aspects of learning how to make an entire gene, which means that when they leave working with us, they're much better equipped to be able to have a job in another place should they choose to or need to, and therefore not be dropped back down to minimum wages, but they can still earn a higher wage and hopefully a living wage. I mean, we pay living wages, which again, that is different to minimum wage. It means they get to live a lifestyle like you and I, where they can have healthcare, they can save for the future, go out for dinner on a Friday night. That's the basic starting point. And then they earn more as they increase in their skills. And then education. And education is a massive part because simple things that I think we take for granted by having been grown up in a privileged country like Australia doesn't necessarily happen when you grow up in a poor community in a nation like Cambodia. And so being able to help them with the educational gaps, it could be around finance. So they're earning a living wage now. So how do they learn how to manage that money? You know, often people find themselves in a worse position as a result of earning more money. And so it's our job to be able to help them learn how to have household budgets, women's health, you know, self-defense, English, a range of different things they get to learn. And so when someone buys our product, the result of buying it is all of those things. So we're very different to a give back program where we say, hey, X percentage of profits goes back into this cause. We didn't ever want to create that. What we wanted to create was a product that generated the greatest amount of social and environmental change just by being a product and selling. And the product needs to sell itself. It has to be a beautiful product that people want. And then the byproduct of it is that these things happen. It is so fantastic hearing you talk about it because, I mean, I'm definitely like a certified shopaholic and <laughs> I really want to stop buying now and I'm trying to reduce my buying, but still I want pretty things and I like to have new things in my wardrobe. So it's pretty amazing that not only is it, oh, this garment is sustainable, but 
by buying it, you're actually doing something really good. So it's better to buy than not to buy. Absolutely. And I think this is the thing, one of the things I'm most passionate about using business for is to be able to generate a way where consumerism becomes a positive thing. At the moment, it's nearly like a dirty word because, you know, everyone's talking about slow fashion. And, you know, my frustration about that conversation is that the people element, the social aspect of that conversation has been forgotten. We're talking about an environmental impact. And at the same time, we're going to consume less and therefore create a massive issue for the people that work within our garment factories producing the clothing that we do wear. So what I think needs to happen is that we need to be able to find ways where the environmental and social impact is considered in whatever business model we choose to adopt and try and then spread out. And I think that this is one business model. I mean, we've spent nearly 10 years now investing into being able to create a way where it's a positive on the social and a positive on the environmental. And we're consistently investing into developing technology to be able to have that kind of impact. And we believe that we're quite close in being able to claim on an environmental level as well that it's better to actually produce it than not. I actually thought that the solution was not buying until I did Fashion Revolution Sustainability. They had this um, online course that we all did in our office. Awesome. And they were explaining the idea of the fact that there are millions of people that work in the fashion industry that would just be unemployed if everyone tomorrow stopped buying. So it's a pretty incredible solution that you've come up with. In the fast fashion companies, is slavery prevalent in their supply chain? Yeah, there's no question. There's no question whatsoever. It's really, really bad. And unfortunately, the auditing system is the best thing we've got right now, but it doesn't solve the problem because, you know, we've got certified companies taking large orders and then they go out through the back door to be produced down the road by a sweatshop and and still sold through the banner company. And so it's a massive problem. And I think that the solutions for this are probably held quite tightly by the auditing programs and that model of function. But I I just don't see it as really solving the problem. To solve the problem, we're going to have to come up with something way better than what we're currently seeing out there, being able to guarantee that people aren't exploited. Um, For us, that means that we've integrated um, a world first in an auditing system that means that 24-7 we're audited by a third party, which means that if something happened, I don't have time to hide it. It's already been done and seen. And that's the kind of transparency that I believe our industry needs so that you and I can go forward confidently knowing that our business is a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem. It's so crazy to hear you say that, that there is slavery as part of fast fashion companies. Because I think a lot of us now we're aware of these issues and we're like, oh, I probably shouldn't be buying from this place, but oh, well, I want this pretty Mm. thing. But I feel like if people really realize that slaves could have been making your garments, that's a huge wake up call for people. And I think people are more and more waking up to these massive issues. And it's pretty cool to hear that this business model that you've created, it's kind of making it feel less of this overwhelming issue of how we ever going to solve it. And companies like yours are taking these steps to actually change the industry. We'd love to hear a little bit about what those early days of Outland Denim looked like and how you kind of went about getting your first customers once (laughs) you'd dreamed up, okay, this is what we want to do. Oh, the early days were um, a bit ridiculous, to be honest, just in being able to you know, make our first products, bring them to the market, try and sell it. And the, and the things you think you know and that you think will work. I mean, I, I honestly thought, how could people not care about this? Of course, people are going to want to buy this product. And having such a limited knowledge of what was a good product and what wasn't as well, 
was really difficult. So we took what we thought was a good product to the market. And yes, we were making sales immediately. But, you know, I'm talking like selling a gene a day kind of deal. And it's, you know, it's been a consistent journey since then in perfecting our product. And I really learned, you know, that our product is everything. You don't change anyone's life with a crappy product. But if you have a beautiful product that people want, you can absolutely change the outcome of the makers from beginning to end. Oh yeah, we learned that one the hard way, having a crappy product. The first couple of seasons for us, we were just like, yeah, this will do, they'll buy it. And it's like, no, no, they see right through that. Having a cool brand is not enough. Having a great story is not enough. You need the product. You need the product, yeah. And so we then started to bring in the right kind of advice and you know, we've just employed new designer as well. Our design element had to really step up and the designer we had is doing a great job, but she was also doing lots of jobs and so trying to get people just narrowed into doing what they do and doing a really good job of it versus being spread too thin was a really big thing. So that was probably one of the biggest learnings was getting your product right. But then the other thing that we've done very differently, I think, to most brands is we've not actually focused on sales. We have focused on the foundational elements of the business so that actually our next step, the next part of our strategy is to now go and focus on building sales. So all the sales we've made have been very organic. So we've had great endorsements by media and celebrities, and they generate some sales, but they're predominantly a brand awareness exercise. And so it doesn't generate heaps of sales. So what we've decided to do was to be able to make sure our foundations are right in order to be able to scale quite rapidly. And so what that means is we need to make sure we can make enough product to start with, and that's been what we've been investing into for the last 18 months to two years in moving into a new facility, increasing our capacity so that we can scale quite quickly, and then opening the new regions. So opening Nordstrom's and Bloomingdale's for the US, and Harry Rosenholt run through for Canada and David Jones here in Australia, along with a few specialty stores as well. So now that we've got those things in place, and yes, of course, we've been making sales in there, but not like we can once we start marketing it. And so actually our next step is that, just to now market our brand and generate sales. So we're quite excited because it feels like we've done the hard yards and now three and a half years in, we're ready to actually start to hopefully make some substantial sales. I think that's such a clever way that you've gone about it. I think so many brands just go in like, how can I sell, sell, sell right now? Yeah. But stopping and building those foundations, it's really important because you're creating a long lasting business model rather than chasing those instant wins, which I feel like so many of us fall prey to. Well, it's such a temptation, isn't it? We've got to pay the bills. And so sales are key. And we've had to learn a lot about our sales process. And we've used these years to be able to learn those things. And we're still learning. There's still so much to learn. But I feel like we're in a really strong position now because of having really focused on the foundation first. And you touched on celebrities there. And I guess it's a funny one because I'm sure people look at a celebrity wearing a brand's clothing and it's like, oh my God, amazing. That's so wonderful. But you also need to have the capacity to be able to provide the product that people want to buy. Yeah, We know you've been asked about it a million times, but we couldn't sit down with you and not mention that Meghan Markle did wear your jeans mm. in um, 2018 when she was in Australia. A bunch of times, right? Yeah. I mean, and she's continued to since and it's been quite amazing to actually watch the progression of, you know, how a customer responds to somebody wearing it more than once. Yeah, that is really interesting. So we wanted to know, did you give her the pair of jeans or like, did she get it from a PR? Do you know how she actually got them? 
<laughs> there is actually royal protocol around all of that, except that what I can say to you is we didn't give them to her, no. Our PR didn't give them to her either. It was, you know, I'd say Jessica Maroney, her best friend, she was made aware of our brand and I'd say she'd be, I would imagine, the reason why Megan has been made aware of us and then obviously made steps to support the brand in quite a significant way. It's pretty crazy. And also like I was reading about how Leonardo DiCaprio requested to be wearing Outland in like a big spread in a magazine. Yeah, That's pretty nuts. And it's pretty cool that they, as celebrities, are using their power to spread these good messages and support these awesome brands as well. Oh, look, it's unbelievable. We got an Instagram message from Leonardo's stylist and, you know, immediately you don't really think it's probably going to be a a real thing, but it turned out to be a real thing. And as you find out after the fact, he'd requested them and, you know, wants to be part of it. And again, just it wasn't seeded. It was just that he's been made aware of it and he's using his voice for these kinds of things. So it's been a dream ride in some aspects, but I think it's because those hard yards were done well before we launched our brand that we are getting some cut through now. How did the business change after all the big press that you guys got after the Meghan Markle thing or did it change? Yeah, it definitely changed. I think the greatest change that we saw after Meghan Markle was, well, obviously we sold out of the jean that she was wearing, but we're a small brand. We were even smaller then and you can sell out quite quickly of that jean. Um, There's a little bit of overflow into other products, but not a lot. They really were Meghan Markle fans who wanted that jean that she wore. But also incredible to see how fast it sold and that I was in Cambodia with our brand manager at the time. He was actually a sales manager and his phone would be notified every time there was an Australian sale online. And um, his phone was just going ding, ding, ding. You know, it was like, wow. (laughs) Oh, my God. Amazing. Yeah, it was a pretty surreal experience. But I think the thing that impacted us all the most, I mean, that was fantastic to get a cash injection, get some product out there. But the media and the way they responded, the fact that all the way around the world, we had these major publications from the likes of Vogue to Elle and London Financial Times, all these amazing publications, writing about it, using Meghan Markle's name as the headline, and then just going on to talk about our brand. It was quite a phenomenal experience to just see the way the world really wanted to get behind us. And I think that led into even the decisions that we've made of recent times about, you know, going, it's only because the public have really backed us that we now want to be able to give back to the public and allow them to have a greater part play in our brand. And we're always looking for that angle now to be able to incorporate our customers and community into it. Everyone at the moment is talking about how people are buying with their values And it's awesome to see that's happening more and more, but we have faced this challenge in our brand that people still want to be buying what's the cheapest. And we end up competing with like these fast fashion companies who don't operate based on their values. And it can be pretty frustrating. Do you think that that is going to change? I really do think it's going to change. When I say these things, people challenge me on it quite regularly, but um, I believe that if you use history as an example, we're, we're like a pendulum. And so we swing from one side to the next. And I believe that we're on a bit of a backswing from think about the baby boomers and the challenges their parents and and themselves going through recessions and war. And so security was really, really important. And, you know, if security is really important, then you're going to be really careful with every dollar you spend. And business started out operating in a way where everybody would be treated fairly. So that's just presumed that that's it. But over time, 
we haven't realized, but slowly we've been so concerned with the bottom line that we've seen this massive degradation in the way that we operated our businesses as far as towards humans go. And so this exploitation has become part of it. And the millennial generation is like, well, hey, we're tired of that. We want to shop our values. We want to be a part of change or experience or whatever it might be. And so forth, the shopping behaviors have changed. And that's where brands like yours and like ours has the ability to get some cut through in a market, whereas once upon a time, it might have been quite difficult, certainly for our brand anyhow. So I think that the brands that don't get on with it, and I would even go as far as saying big brands that need to address one of those things, they need to give their customers experience or they need to align with the values of their customer. It's got to be something. It just can't be a cool brand anymore. If they don't move in this direction, I think they're going to really struggle as time goes on. I think we really share the same sentiment. And I think at the core of that is that humans are good, you know, and we really want to believe that. So ultimately, you do want to be buying with your values because that's good. I was at Chadston yesterday getting my laptop fixed and I just like had a wander into Zara and I saw a few things that I liked and I was like, nah, you know what? Not today. I'm <gasps> good for you, Jessica. I'm I, proud yeah. of you. <laughs> Massive, I know. But you know, because I just didn't feel good about it because like the things that you say, it was actually after I had done some research into Outland Denim and I saw you talking about slavery and I just felt so icky about it. And I guess the power in knowledge is really what that is. And yeah. if, if people know what's behind there, that's when they're going to say, oh, okay, no, nah, this isn't for me. Yeah, there's no question. And, and look, it only changes when uh, more people do what, what you chose to do. And that's good. I'm not going to support this movement or this kind of behavior any longer. And over time, the ultimate thing that can come from that is that those brands change and use the power they have to be a part of creating something positive versus something negative. So if we all were to look at any of those kinds of brands, we could say, Ultimately, the greatest change is going to come if those brands were the ones that were investing into this kind of change because they have the most reach, they have the most power. Are they going to be able to produce at those prices and do it the right way? No, I don't believe they will be able to. But if we stop shopping there and they get the message and then they use the ability they have from an R&D perspective and from just the ability they have to be able to find new ways, then I, I think that the greatest outcome can only come in that way. And it'll be nice for lots of brands to think, oh, but and then we'll become the biggest brand. But I don't think that's how the greatest change happens. I think we should see ourselves as that annoying little brother that's going to be there poking and frustrating them and trying to motivate and push them in that direction. And then they change and we see amazing things happen. We'll be that little sister right there with you. (laughs) Yeah, awesome, (laughs) awesome. Well, thank you so much, James. We are actually ending off every interview this week by asking people this question. So the theme of the festival this year is Fashion's Wonderland. So we wanted to ask you if you could create James's Wonderland, where would you be? Who would be with you and what would you be doing? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> how, <laughs> how honest do I be? <laughs> <laughs> Completely honest. We're, very, we're all about honesty here. That really does make you think. Look, friends and family. I know that sounds probably like a bit of a cop-out, but you know what? I have two little girls and a wife and I have great friends. And I personally love the outback. I love the country. And I would just love to be out there. You know, my dream as a kid was to, be a cowboy so i just love it out in those places i just outback australia so that's where i'd be awesome well we hope to visit james's wonderland one day we'd love to come see 
Outland HQ. Yeah, absolutely. In the middle of Australia. <laughs> and if um, people did really like what they heard today about you and about Outland Denim, which I'm sure they did, where can they find you and find more information? Yeah, I mean, they can go to our website, which is outlanddenim.com.au, or they can go to any of our social media handles and see us there as well. And we're always happy to, you know, have a question. And some of the things that we claim, you know, I claim that we're the most sustainable denim brand in the world. And so I encourage those kinds of questions, you know, for anyone who's skeptical and wants to learn or understand more, you know, we, we really do welcome that. We think it's about having the conversation to be able to, you know, be the first step in making change. Awesome. Love that transparency. And I think you, you said you've got a show at VAMP this Friday as well, right? Yeah, yeah. This Friday we'll be at, at VAMP and we're on a um, panel. Then we're closing out the event as well. So, you know, hoping to see people there and appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Thanks, James. Thank you so much, James. We'll see you at VAMP on Friday. Look forward to it. So if you did like this episode, we would just love your help in getting the word out so more people can listen to James's awesome story. You can do that in a few ways. You can leave a review and five stars in the podcast app. You can share a picture of you listening on Instagram or send the episode to a friend. And of course, please make sure you join How to Live the Podcast, our Facebook group, because we always continue the discussion there and we would love for you to be a part of it. And stay tuned for this afternoon's episode. It's a great one with Yanni Giovannoglu, the trend specialist at WGSN, which is this incredible trend forecasting body. They forecast fashion, food, animals. It's an amazing conversation. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. We will see you guys this afternoon. And remember, if you want to purchase tickets to this Saturday's live podcast with Catherine Wills, please follow the link in our show notes. We would love to see you there. And usually we say see you next week, but we'll see you this afternoon. Bye.